Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. I shortened the title for this evening's message. I call it the path to maturity. It causes me to stop and reflect and think. I want you to think with me tonight. What does it take to be mature personally? And also, what does it take to be? Got a little feedback, Jay. What does it take for uh, a church to be mature? Um, many of you are parents. Some of you are grandparents. Some of you are great-grandparents. Um, think about the maturing process as you raise kids. You watch them from the age of little Dorothy back there to our daughter now. It's hard to believe she turned 40 this, uh, this January. Think about that maturing process. What does it take? Let's be interactive tonight. What are some of the ingredients that pour into maturity? What's that? Time. Yeah. Therefore, if a person is 35 years old, they are much more mature than a 25-year-old. Is that right? But that's true. It does take time. It takes time. Uh, so my, my mother used to say, son, you know, wisdom is not always a function of age. Just because a person has gray hair doesn't necessarily mean they're necessarily wise. And sometimes the youngest among us come out with some of the wisest questions and sayings. Yeah. Guidance? Guidance in what form? Patience. Patience. So guidance, you have boundaries. Okay. Where do we get those boundaries? From the Word of God. Okay, and also parents that teach them. Thy rod and thy staff, they will comfort me. Uh, the staff with a hook on it was able to pull the, she the sheep out of the gully, but the rod did what? Bumped them along the way, kept them in line. So along with that guidance is discipline. Okay. Parental, hopefully. And then patience. Does it take a lot of patience to be a parent? Yes. <laughs> and Heather and Mark are back there nodding their head up. Now. What? A good one. To be, that's right, to be a good one. Does it take patience to be a good son or daughter? Because not all parents are uh, always on track on the given day. Uh, so, yeah. We need mentors. So it takes time, it takes discipline, it takes guidelines, it takes patience. It also takes a little bit of resistance, a little, bit, a little adversity. Is adversity a good thing? It can be. Not at the time. But not, yeah. Lord, give me patience. And when you pray that prayer, what happens? Yeah, you'll have adversity, yeah. Um, but adversity is a good thing. James talks about that at the beginning of, of his book, doesn't he? It, it builds patience, that builds endurance, that builds the what kind of person? What's the word that's used there? Tell, tell I us. Perfect. We move toward perfection. Well, thanks for helping me talk through that because those are some of the ingredients that are behind the message tonight and we need to think about. Think about this. Uh, Paul... In all of his letters, if, if Paul died somewhere between 62 and 64, and he was doing most of his mission activities from the um, early 50s, the churches that he are writing, that he, that he, to which he is writing, are teenagers. Oh, that's a dangerous thing. Uh, are there children? The oldest church at the time of Paul's death, about 64 A.D., was how old? 
depends on when we date the crucifix, crucifixion, resurrection, and the founding of the church at, uh, at Jerusalem. But let's just put about 30 as the date. So the oldest church, Jerusalem, and then Antioch after that, and those that then are spawned out of the, Jew, the, uh, the Jewish Christian diaspora of the first generation. At the oldest, they're in their late 20s. 30. Now, granted, in that day and time, when you're 30 years old, you're a lot older than you are 30 years old today. Life expectancy wasn't as long, although people did live to be some quite old. But So stop and think about that. These churches, many of them are young. Uh, many of them are still rather immature. Let's just do a survey. Uh, give me some examples of some immature churches that we know exhibit immaturity from Paul's writings. What? The, the church at Corinth, yeah. yeah. What problems do they have? They have problems with division, immorality, yeah, abuse of spiritual gifts, rebellion, against whom were they rebelling? God, but under whose authority? Paul, they rebelled against him. Uh, what about the churches in Galatia? They were preaching a gospel that was what? A gospel of works, legalism, a gospel that Paul says is a new gospel that is not a gospel at all. What about the churches in Revelation? In Revelation, Revelation 2, Pergamum and Thyatira. We don't know who this uh, Jezebel was. We don't know all about the Nicolaitans, but we know that there was apparently immorality and idolatry. Uh, Sardis, I'm going to get to Ephesus in a minute. Yeah. I'm talking about the ones that are really immature. Um, Sardis, Paul, de, uh, John describes them, the Lord describes them as basically sleepwalking. <laughs> they, they weren't following through on the deeds that, that, that God would have them do. So they kind of walked through life as though they were walking in, in, in their sleep. Uh, Laodicea, what was their problem? They were lukewarm. You know, uh, Nathan mentioned Ephesus. I'd put them in another category. There's another category that aren't really immature, but they're churches that have problems. Do, do churches have problems? Every church has problems, sure. Uh, as, as strong a church as Ephesus was, we find that Paul has to exhort them in chapter 4 to the middle of chapter 5 uh, not to return to their old days and their old way of life. And we've been looking a little bit at that as we have talked about the letter of the Ephesians. Um, and later, in Revelation, it's the first church that John addresses in the seven churches of Asia. And he says, you have lost your what? Your first love, their passion. So I don't think that they're immature, but they've got problems. Uh, even Colossae. Colossae seems to be threatened, maybe with the uh, rise of Gnosticism, although they may not have been Gnostic themselves. And certainly in chapter 2, there are hints of legalism that have begun to creep into the church there. Philippi. Philippi was a strong church, a good church, a, a church that Paul loved. He loved them all, but he, he really, you know, thanks God for every remembrance of them and, and their support of him in the gospel and the koinonia that he had with them, the fellowship. And by the way, that word there is not just fellowship in terms of friendship, but fellowship in as much as they contributed to the what? to the offering for the saints. And he uses the term koinonia in that respect. But even they, he has to encourage them to stand firm. He, uh, there's, a, there's a hint maybe in chapter 2 of some grumbling and disputing. And in chapter 3, he warns them against false teachers. So they're churches that have problems, even though they're not so immature. Can you name some churches that um, seem to have been more mature churches about whom we have no complaints in Scripture? What? Thessalonica. Thessalonica, maybe. Yep. Uh, they're beginning to have questions about the second coming. They have some doctrinal issues. Yeah. Uh, Antioch. They were strong. They, they were the first mission-sending church, weren't they? Yeah. Berea. Berea. They obviously were steeped in the Word of God, even though this is just at the very beginning of their uh, uh, life as a Christian church, they, they 
challenged Paul to make sure that what he was teaching was what? Scriptural. And then we've got uh, Smyrna. Smyrna and Philadelphia are the two churches in Revelation. Though they're poor and they're uh, smaller, Paul commends them. It says nothing negative about them. My point in all of this is churches are sort of like humans. Uh, some of them are very, very immature. They're immature in their faith. Some are challenged with problems, and they have to work through them, and we help to guide them as pastors and leaders. And uh, sometimes we have those same problems ourselves. And some are more mature. Tonight we're talking about not just individuals being mature, but Paul is also talking to the church at Ephesus about being a mature church. Where have we, how have we gotten here? Well, this is the third series that we've done. Remember the first of those is God has uh, established their identity in chapter 1, verses uh, 1 through chapter 2, verse 10. What does it mean to be a Christ follower? Just very quick review. It means that one is chosen before the foundation, redeemed for an inheritance, sealed with a pledge, enlightened with a certain hope, subject to Christ under his authority who is over all, enlivened, that is, made alive and raised in Christ, and saved, chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, saved by what? Grace, Grace through faith. And then we move to the next phase. And that was the sermons and the messages on the masterpiece that God is creating. What is his masterpiece? It's the church. Chapter 2, verse 11 through the end of chapter 3. The church is reconciled and unified as a body. It is built on one foundation, the apostles and the prophets, with the cornerstone being Jesus Christ. Thirdly, they are the stewards of the mystery of Christ. Fourthly, they are proclaiming God's eternal purpose to grant access to Christ. And it, we finish that series by talking about being strengthened by God's power, His presence, and His love. Oh, we didn't mention that. And the maturation process, what is really necessary? Love on both sides. Parents and children. We'll come to that in just a few moments. And then we move to this, this uh, third series that we're finishing tonight, and that is that God equips us for ministry. Uh, about three weeks ago, Joel talked about uh, the, the walk as a unified body. Unified in the bond of what? Unified in the bond of what? Peace that is empowered by the Spirit. And then last week, Brady talked to us about the, the building up of that body for the purpose of equipping and service so that we might be mature. And tonight, then, we come to that point that the whole chapter 4 has been pointing toward. Uh, we walk as a unified body in the bond of peace, and we're equipped with the gifts and those that fill those positions with those gifts to build us up for equipping for service. For what purpose? Well, it, you would think it's to do ministry, and it is. But there is a purpose beyond that, and that is that the church will grow and it will become mature. That's the biblical context for where we are tonight. Now, there's a relational context for where we are tonight. When you look at these first 12 verses of chapter 4, what is the context there? Well, I'm going to put it in the context of worship. Does that surprise you? We're in a series on worship on Sunday morning, and, and I think it does have to do with worship. What's the context background for these first 12 verses? Well, first, uh, worship is how we defined it. Relational worship is responding to God's call to do what? To walk with Him. Well, gee, wow. It, it says, look at chapter 4, four verse 1. What does it say? Walk Walk, and with whom are we walking? With him, in a manner that is worthy of your what? Calling. Do you see the connection there with worship? How can we do that? How can we do this? How can we walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling if, in fact, we are not walking with him? And he encourages us to do this. This section, uh, the first 12 verses that we've just covered in the past three weeks, uh, explains how to fulfill that calling to walk with God in a worshipful way. The manner of the walk is found in verse number two, the attitudes of humility, gentleness, and tolerance. 
and in walking this way before God and with each other, we are motivated, verse 2, by what? Agape, by his love. And Joel covered this. How are we to walk? We, to, we are to walk alongside each other peaceably and unified by God's Spirit in the bond of peace. And verses 4 through 6, we're, we have a standard that's set before us as a church. The church is to be a unified church in verse number 4. One body, one what? Spirit, and one hope. Not only is it about the church itself, but it's also about the dynamic that empowers the church. There's one Lord, one faith, and one what? Baptism. It's also about the unified authority of the church in verse number 6. One God and Father who is over all, of all, and through all. And so, as Joel mentioned at the beginning of tonight's service, it's about unity. And then, last week, Brady walked us through preparing for the walk. Uh, there are two ways that we're prepared for the walk. The equipping of the saints and the works of service. There are five means that are given there whether or not we want to make them positions in the church or we want to call them gifts in the church and they are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. The spiritual gifts, the spiritual skills, and the spiritual people that we have then that help us, they are the means of moving toward this goal. And the end goal is to do what? To build up the body of Christ. So to grow. There's a lot of talk today about church growth. Well, there has been ever since I was in seminary in the 70s. The Greening of the Church, I remember that book. Uh, all about church growth. And when we think of church growth, church growth is planting more churches and growing and having more church congregations. But what Paul is talking about here, although that is laudable and that's important to do, Paul is talking about here what kind of church growth. He's talking about maturity. Gamble Street Baptist Church is how old in, on November the 15th of this year? 107 years old. We're an old church. <laughs> but I look out there and I see a lot of young people. Okay? Um, a mature church, I would say. But one of the responsibilities of a mature church is as new believers come in, to mature them in Christ and integrate them into the life of that church, to be multi-generational. And I hope that we do a good, good job of that. Growth is not just about planting more churches. Growth is also about growing in the body. So all of this that we have been talking about in chapter 4, the unified body and the bond of peace powered by, empowered by the Spirit with all the gifts, it's moving toward a purpose. And that purpose is fulfilled in tonight's message. It is the ultimate objective of all of this is, yes, to do ministry, to equip the saints, but it is to grow the kingdom of God. And not just grow the kingdom of God this way, although we do that, but to grow it deeply, to mature it. So tonight's message, I would say, there are three things. You might expect me to say. This morning, did you notice there weren't three things? Did you notice how many were there this morning? How many were there? There were four. Wow. Um, one of these days, I'm going to preach a one-point sermon. I don't uh, Maybe two. Tonight, three things. Number one, we need to become fully Christ-like in every respect. If we're going to be mature, we need to become fully Christ-like in every respect. Number two, we're to grow up. It's a challenge. We're not to be babes in Christ and stay that way forever. The author of Hebrews tells us about that. Paul tells the Corinthians that too. Peter puts it differently. We're to, to drink of the, the spiritual milk, but that is so that we'll become mature. Grow up spiritually, and in so doing, we model truth and love wisely. And then thirdly, we need to serve and grow in Christ and those work together, serving Christ and growing in Christ in unison and love. Let's take a look at the text. Ephesians 4, 13 through 16. Until, oh, that's interesting. It begins with, uh, what is until? Is it an adverb? I think it is. 
It's not a noun. It's not a verb. Until we attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature person, the word that is here is man. It means the same thing. To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful schemings. But, not those things, but what? Probably one of the most quoted, not verses, but portions of verses in all of New Testament. Speaking the what? The truth in love. You see, this is contrasted with those other things. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. It causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So let's take a look at the first of these. Uh, becoming Christ-like in every respect. Verse 13, until we attain. When you hear that word until, what does it suggest? It, it anticipates. We're not there yet. Uh, there's a goal out there to fulfill. An until that is aspirational. An until that provides a promise. An until that prepares us. It's aspirational. It's not yet accomplished. Paul himself says to the Philippians, and I know he's talking about the ultimate receiving of his salvation end in heaven, but he says, I have not yet what attained it. So we're always in the until process in this maturation. It's an until that is a, an achievable promise, though. We're to become Christ-like. You know, sometimes we have goals out there that we say, well, uh, the Bible doesn't really mean that. Be holy like your heavenly Father is holy, Jesus says. Well, who can be holy like the heavenly Father is holy? Like the heavenly Father is holy. We can be. We can't be identical with him and become the heavenly Father, but there's a goal out there, there's an aspiration out there that is not just an empty challenge. You know what I'm talking about? When we're challenged to be perfect, we, we tend to say, well, we can't be perfect. The Bible doesn't really mean perfect. Yes, it does. Because it is an achievable goal when we understand what perfect is. Um, Jesus means it when he says, be holy like your heavenly father. James means it when he says that it is possible for us not only to move toward perfection, but get very close to it. And James 1. So it's an achievable promise, this maturity. It's an, an until that is preparatory. We understand this. We are not going to be completely like Christ in this life. But we prepare to be that way. Is there going to come a time when we're more like Christ than we could ever imagine? I said time. Is there going to be an eternity that we're going to be like Christ in a way that we could never imagine? Yes. When we die, we are going to be glorified and we are going to have a body that is like unto His. He tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4. We're not going to be Christ, but are we going to be more like Him? Yes. So I think what's happening here is we're learning here how to grow in Christ because guess what's going to happen in eternity? It's going to be an eternal process of becoming more and more and more and more like Christ. Wow. Will we ever get there? No. But we prepare to do so, and we learn how to do so here. Until we all. This is not an individual exercise. Oh, it is individual. Are we to be individually mature? Yes. But what Paul is talking about here is a maturity that is not just individual. He's talking about all of us together, collectively. It's a collective ex exercise that we work together toward, supporting and encouraging each other until we all attain. We, you have this idea of grasping when you attain. That's not what is said here. It's not the individual reaching out and grasping and holding on to something. And then Paul talks about that in other places, but not here. This word attain actually means to come to, to meet. I think what he's saying here is it is all of us attaining together, coming to the meeting point 
where not individually, but we arrive together at the same point in maturity until we all do what? We achieve the unity. Unity of what? It says here, the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. This unity is clear. It's oneness. It harkens back to verse number three. We are to maintain the bond of peace in the what? Look at verse number three. The bond of peace in the what? The unity of the Spirit. This unity can only be achieved through the Spirit of God. It's not contrived by human power. Maturity comes through the power of the Holy Spirit and God Himself, and He unites us in the bond of peace through the Spirit. It's important for us, I think, to recognize, again, it's unity, but it's not uniformity. What's the difference? Uniformity is goose-step, lock-step uniformity. Everybody walks exactly the same way, looks the same way. We're automatons. We're robots. Is that what he's saying here? No. No. Is there room in this unity for diversity? Absolutely. He talks about that in 1 Corinthians 12, doesn't he? There are many different gifts, and they're all different, and we exercise them differently. So this unity is not uniformity. It is coming together and attaining together in agreement where all the pieces come together. There's unity of two things. What is it? And it's interesting here. It's the faith, okay, uh, which is the, the pistos. You know, in, in the Greek language, as in the Hebrew language, uh, often the direct article is not being used. The, you know, you know that. Here it is. As a matter of fact, more often than not, the definite article is not used. Here it is. It's the unity and the faith. Now, what that that can mean is that they're treated separately, okay? What it does say to me is that there is something that is the faith that is objective, okay? And there is a knowledge that is objective. This isn't just kind of some amorphous, you know, hope, but it's the faith. It's not just some kind of general knowledge. It's the body of knowledge. It also suggests when we read this passage that there may be a couple of different ways of reading how it connects within the latter part of the Son of God. You could read this about five different ways. The faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. It could be that the faith, uh, okay, the fa- is it this? Is it the faith by itself? And the knowledge of the Son of God. You got that? So is it faith over here and then knowledge of the Son of God? Or is it of the faith of the Son of God and the knowledge of the Son of God? You see, you can read it two different ways. Legitimately. If you treat it standalone, then I think the faith would be something like this. We need to grow in the faith. And then in the knowledge of the Son of God. If it's that way, then I think the faith may be talking about doctrinal beliefs. Okay? The things that we have learned about Him. Especially in light of verse number 14. Because in in verse number 14, it's talking about people that come to do what? They come to pervert those teachings. To twist them. So he may be talking about the faith here as a body of doctrine that we are supposed to be familiar with. And I think there's some legitimacy to that. As part of the maturity and growing in Christ knowing the doctrine that has been passed down through the Scripture and through the generations. Yes. It could be talking about personal faith, that that faith that I have, you know. Uh, I think this is unlikely here because I don't think that my faith is exactly like your faith is exactly like her faith is exactly like his faith. I don't think what he's saying is all of our faith needs to look exactly the same. Does that make sense? Each of our faith has different dimensions, backgrounds, and capacities. It could be, you know, the word faith, pistos, is also used for faithfulness. That there's a unity in our faithfulness. Um, and that, that's, that's possible. Um, except for this. If it is unity of the faith by itself, it's not connected over here with Christ. So I think that's unlikely. I, I think that it may be talking about doctrine here. If, if you look at it then as the faith and knowledge together of Christ, it could have two interpretations. It could be the faith that is in Christ. 
and the knowledge of Christ. And I think that that's a very likely interpretation. If it is the other way around, if the genitive is used differently, and it is the faith of Christ, and you know Paul talks about that in some places in Scripture, what faith do you have? You have faith that is in Christ, but we also know that Paul talks in several places about the faith of Christ. So, uh, for by grace you're saved through faith, and not that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You know, we have said this several times. That thing that is not of ourselves isn't the grace. That's understood. The thing that is not of ourselves is the what? The faith. The idea being there, the faith that we have that we put in Christ is something that didn't begin with us. Oh, we exercise it. But it is the faith that has been given to us by God. Lest we should boast about it and we make our faith a work. Hmm. So now, taking that idea into account, there is, that, there is this idea in, in Pauline writing that there is the faith of Christ. Is that what is being said here? I, I don't think so. Because what that would suggest is we need to strive to have this unity of the faith that Christ has given us. There's no division in the Spirit. The faith that He has given you and you and me is equal. He gives all of us the same kind and measure of faith. Now, it may grow differently depending on how we exercise it, but I don't think that God is unfair. He gives you more faith than He gives me. I don't think that's what he's saying here, okay? I think what's being said here is something like this. It's the faith that we have been taught, the body of doctrine, that should be unified, and also the faith that we exercise in Christ should be unified. That'd be my take on this interpretation. You may disagree. The knowledge is not gnosko, and it's not gnosis, and it's not ido. Uh, Ido is to know something, to understand it. Um, you know, gnosis and gnosko have to do with a deeper, more intimate kind of knowledge. But this goes beyond that. It's epigonosko. It's not just to know and to recognize something. But it is a deep knowledge. And I'm not talking about a hidden, mysterious knowledge that only certain Christians have and others don't. No, that's Gnosticism. <laughs> I'm not talking about that heresy. But what he is saying here is we ought to strive to have a very deep and clear understanding of who Christ is. This word epigenosis is used again in, in uh, verses 17 and 18 of chapter 1. And there it talks about the kind of deep knowledge that comes from the spirit of wisdom and revelation. That gives us what? An insight so that the, I love this phrase, the eyes of our heart might be what? Enlightened. It's that kind of knowledge that he's saying that if we're going to mature in Christ, we ought to have. It's a very clear picture of Christ in our mind's eye and a very deep, deep knowledge of himself. Not just knowing about him, but knowing who he is. What does Paul strive for? You know, one of my favorite passages of Scripture is 1 Corinthians 2 where he talks to the Corinthians, he says, when I come to you, I didn't come with highfalutin words and great wisdom and all of that. Why not? Paul said, what was my goal? My goal wasn't to be popular. My goal wasn't to be perceived to be a great preacher. My goal wasn't for it to be focused on me. I was focused on communicating to you the power of God. And in order to communicate the power of God, which is the preaching of the cross, he said, my goal was to do what? To know Christ and Him crucified. This is what Paul was all about all of his life. To know, more, to know Christ more deeply. That was his passion. To the Philippians, he says, that I may know Him. Epigenosko is not used there, but gnosko is. That intimate love. He says, to know Him and the power of His, of his resurrection and the what? If we're going to know the power of his resurrection, we must then know his what? What is one of the ingredients of maturation process? It's adversity. 
to know him and the power of his resurrection and the what? The fellowship of his sufferings. It's that kind of knowledge. And the purpose of this is that we might have the mature man, he says. Now, okay, here we come to it. Is it possible to be perfect? Is it possible to be teleios? Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. James says that this adversity strengthens our faith and it builds endurance that we might be perfect. If you've, if you've heard me preach over the past few years, you know what, the, what my answer to that is. What is it to be perfect? It's not flawless. It's what? To fulfill the purpose that God has given you. He created each one of you to be the unique individual you are. And he has a mission for you to do the things that he has called you to do and to become the person he created you to be. Is that subjective? Of course it's subjective. Each person becomes a different kind of person that God... But it's objective in this sense. It is the one creator who made you. And he calls you to fulfill that purpose for which he has made you. It's that kind of perfection. Perfection is designed, defined here as to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. The word measure there is metron. The metric of this is that we will have the full stature and the fullness of Christ. Stature. How do we measure stature? Well, I'm not as tall as I used to be. I used to be, believe it or not, about 5'10". I think I'm about 5'8 five, five now. The bones, yeah, the bones settle, okay? Is it talking about that kind of stature? It can be used that way. No. But this word in Greek is also used to define age. So maturity is not just a function of age, but you get this idea of growing in time and patience. We think of adults hopefully being more mature because they have more experience behind them. So... The measure is our growing over time into the fullness of Christ. And the word there is pleroma. And, of course, you know that means to overflow. The standard of Christian maturity is that our faith walk and our knowledge walk. We will come to know Christ in such a way that we overflow with him. Okay, so... First of these points is that we are to become Christ-like in what respect? In every respect. And then secondly, we are to grow up spiritually and to model His truth and, and love wisely. That, that's verse 14 in the beginning of verse 15. The result of this maturity is that we are no longer, an evidence of that is, that we're no longer children. And in fact, we're probably no longer adolescents. We're what? Adults. I've heard this phrase used lately called adulting. <laughs> what is, I, don't know, I don't know all it means. I think really what it means is, my, my generation, it, it, it meant when my dad said, grow up, son. You know? Be a what? He was talking to a, a, a boy. He said, be a what? Man. Be a man. Well, ladies, you're called to be a man, too, in, in the sense of, you know, be a human the German, Germans have a term for this. It's called to be a mensch. And the word mensch means what? It's more than being man. It's, it's, it's being a man. It's being a human. We're no longer children. Uh, <clears throat> this isn't just a function of age, as we've already said. He's talked about children before. You know, uh, back in chapter 2, he said, you had a former life. Don't be like that anymore. Do you remember that? Don't be like the former life that you had before. And in that, in that context, look at verses 3 and 4. He said, when you were like that, you were children. Children of what? Children of wrath. So we have moved from being children of wrath to being children of the light and children of God. And then he says, you go beyond that. You grow as children of the light into maturity. And before he was talking about immaturity in terms of immoral behavior. That, that's chapter 2. Don't, don't go back to that immoral behavior. And now he shifts gears. And he warns them about another problem that they may face. It's not about the lust of the flesh and all of that. 
But there is a problem on the horizon that's coming that they need to be aware of. And if you're not careful, you will be childlike as you confront it. And that's the matter of doctrine. Watch out that your doctrine's not immature. Watch out when there are those that try to come along and trick you. Be discerning and be discriminate. Don't be like the double-minded person. Does that remind you of something from the book of James? Double-minded man is a man that is faithless and he's tossed about like the wind and the wave. There are going to be those that, he says, that will be very shallow about their doctrine. You know, he, he warns Timothy. He says, for the time will come when they will not endure, what? The sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears, what? Some say tickle, some say scratched. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and turn their hearts to myths. There are several warnings in the New Testament, replete warnings against those that come as false prophets, savage wolves, unprincipled men, false teachers. Jesus warned about it. Paul warned about it. Peter warned about it. And John warned about it. And here, Paul is warning them again. So what is this sign of maturity? You're no longer children. Watch out for those that will teach this wrong doctrine. Say, stable in the, in, in, the, in the knowledge of Christ and in your faith in Christ. And then show the sign of true maturity. What is the sign of true maturity? You must speak up. You must proclaim the gospel. You must speak the truth. But do it how? And love. And it's interesting here the word for speak is not used. Laleo. He doesn't say laleo the truth. You know what he does? He uses a verb here that says truth people. It's a verb, truthing people, sort of like adulting. <laughs> it says truth people. It's aletheo. It's built on the word for truth. Think about that. It's not just what you say. But your whole being does what? It gives evidence of the truth. This morning we talked about if you walk in the light, then the truth is in you. If you walk in the darkness, the truth is not in you. And what he's saying here is the sign, one of the signs of maturity is that everything about you truths others. And as you do so, you do it in a loving way. You know, in apologetics, we see this all the time, don't we? <laughs> Those of you who love apologetics, it's so easy in apologetics that the goal is to be what? To rise up and be what? Uh, you don't have to move the camera. I'll, I'll sit back down. Okay. <laughs> to be victorious. To conquer. That should not be the objective of apologetics. The objective of Christian apologetics ought to be what? Whenever they ask us to do what? To give a reasonable account when they ask for us a evidence of the what? Hope that is in us. Not to beat them up. Mm. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy, he says, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind all, apt to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God would grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. You see, the mature Christian is forthright in proclamation of the gospel and giving a testimony for Christ, but always does it with what? With a view toward loving people and God recovering them from sin. You know, <laughs> for those of you who remember spanking days, <laughs> yeah. what, 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 what did your parents say to you? This is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. Don't believe that for a moment. You know. um, I'm only doing this because I, what, love you. Okay, and, and that's true. But we have to be careful when we speak the truth. And we do it in a sort of arrogant way, in a rude way. And we excuse our rudeness by saying, well, I'm really doing this for your own good. No, there's no excuse for that. We do it with love. And then finally, we grow in Christ by serving Him in unison and love. The last part of verse 15 and then verse 16. The mark of Christian, uh, 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 Christian maturity is becoming like Christ. And we are to grow up in all respects unto Him who is the head, even Christ. 
It repeats the idea that's found in verse number 13. In all respects, to grow up in the word there is not, the, the, the word aspects is not in Scripture. It's only all. In other words, you're to grow in allness. Everything about who you are, are ought to be Christ. What did Paul tell the Galatians? What does this mean? I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. That's what he's talking about here. Everything, our physical, our mental, our emotional, our relational, every aspect of our being reflects Christ. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Totally conformed. When we come to the very last, I'm going to give kind of an advertisement for the end of the worship series. The end of the worship series, all on the altar. There's a reason that we've entitled it that. All on the altar. We're going to come to Romans 12, 1 and 2. It means to be what? If we're really worshiping and walking with God day by day the way we should, then we do what? What does Romans 12, 1 and 2 say? We have offered ourselves as a living sacrifice. There's this allness about it, and we serve him in unison and in love. Christian maturity is not just about, you know, Bill being a Christian, a mature Christian, and, and uh, Naomi being a mature Christian, and Jim being a mature Christian. It's about all of us being yoked to Christ and together working to encourage one another that we all, as a body, collectively become mature in Him. This isn't just about the individual. What Paul is talking about here, he's talking to the Ephesians about the church, the body of Christ maturing and developing the DNA of Christ. Does Gambrel Street Baptist Church have the DNA of Christ? Do other churches with which you have been associated have the DNA of Christ? That's the real measure of Christian maturity. You see, he's the head of the body. It's interesting, Ephesians 1, remember how it ended? He, he is over all. He is at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and he is over all as the supreme authority. He's king of all creation whom God gave to the church. Wow. All those gifts that we talked about in chapter 12 that you reviewed last week, Brady, and then in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. All those gifts in which chapter of Romans? Romans 12. All those gifts and offices that we talked about in, in, in chapter 4 of Ephesians last week, they all serve to do what? To be unified, to function in the body as a uni unified organ. And the head of that organ is Jesus Christ. You see, the purpose of this equipping and edifying is so that the body of Christ might grow, that we might be coordinated under the head of the master, and we fulfill the purpose of the masterpiece as mature Christians. Christ being the cornerstone of the whole building. And the language that's used here is very, very similar to what's, what's found in chapter 2. Fitted together, like the building is fitted together, the body is fitted together. The joints work properly, the body and the building together, Christ. And then he brings it all to a conclusion. What is the one thing that we really didn't mention when we talked about maturity at the beginning of this? We talked about patience, we talked about guidance, we talked about discipline and all of those things. But the one thing that we must have for the body of Christ and for us as individual Christians that we must experience and we must share together above all. Paul says it in the chapter that's right between the ch chapters on the gifts. The two chapters, that's right, you got it, it's love. The two chapters on gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 are joined together by which chapter of Scripture? The love chapter. Now abideth faith, 
hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. You see, the agape here is the key to the whole thing. It's a theme of Ephesians, which we didn't really talk about at the beginning of Ephesians when I covered Ephesians. I got to thinking about that later, but it's used 12 times in the book of Ephesians, that short letter. It's essential to the building of the body. It's the attitude that we have for one another. Look at 4.2. Look at 4.2. It's the attitude that we have for one another. Showing tolerance for one another in what? Agape. It is the motivation that we have for speaking truth. Speak the truth in verse number 12 in what? Love. And it's the product It's the product of the building up of the body. It causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love, he closes. You see, God's love is the power that grows the church this way and also in maturity. It's the cement that holds the church together. And it is the motivation for our sharing the gospel. When we share the gospel... Why do we do it? Because we have two loves. Oh, I'm not talking about the difference between phileo and eros and and a God. I'm not talking about those kinds of loves. We have two loves. And we do it because of those two loves. Because we love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. And because we love who else? our neighbor, as ourselves. He calls us to this kind of maturity. That's the purpose of the equipping of the body. It's the purpose of walking together in the bond of peace and the unity of the Spirit so that we might manifest the love of God to a loveless, cold, dark, and dying world. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gamble Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.